everyone. Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine podcast series. This is Alatar Shujan, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut Internal Medicine Residency. A quick disclaimer before we begin. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as a medical advice. All right, guys, we're back with Dr. Deep Prachu, and this is episode two of Renal Series. In this episode, we'll focus on another nephrology topic that is commonly a challenge uh, to understand and remember. Let's hope I can actually pronounce it. Barter's Gettleman and Little Syndrome. Thank you, Allah, for having me back on the podcast for another episode. Yeah, so the tubulopathies or channelopathies, I should say, are, they can also be a bit confusing to learn, but I think if we break it down as to what that normal part of the kidney is and try to put it along with some corollaries, we can try to simplify what's what's going on. So we're just going to sort of dive right in. From a barter perspective, usually when we say barter syndrome, we're talking about a type 1 barter. So just from keeping in the back of your mind that there are four other types of barter syndrome, and they're all due to a different mutation, but the classical one that we talk about is type 1 barters. In this case, the, the triporter, so if you think back to the normal physiology of the loop of Henle, you have this triporter where you pick up sodium, potassium, and two chlorides. So the charges balance out, right? Two positive, two negative. You pick up these ions and they get reabsorbed. You have a sort of leaking back of potassium and that potassium just kind of recycles. So that's the normal physiology of that area of the kidney in terms of the loop family. When you have a problem with that NKCC2, that channel, you can't pick up that sodium, you can't pick up that potassium, you can't pick up that chloride. That can lead to a pretty significant wasting of those electrolytes. That's kind of what happens in a patient with Barter syndrome. So in type 1 Barter syndrome, you have a mutation of that NKCC2 where it doesn't actually insert itself into the loop of Henle and leads to almost a physiology akin to someone taking a loop diuretic. So if you take someone who took a furosemide, you're basically doing the same thing. So instead of not being able to insert that NKCC2, you are just blocking it with a loop diuretic. So the clinical picture for these patients is very similar to someone who just got a loop diuretic. These patients are going to be polyuric. These patients are going to be hypokalemic. You're peeing out that potassium. These patients are going to develop a metabolic alkalosis, first from that slight amount of volume contraction, followed by all the chloride losses. And so when you're thinking of it from a clinical standpoint, really these patients are, in your mind, should be akin to someone taking a loop diuretic. So what makes you think of a Barter syndrome? Well, Barter syndrome is a fairly significant type of disease, meaning that it presents pretty early in life. These kids are usually diagnosed around the time of birth, if not very early childhood, with these electrolyte abnormalities and this type of polyuria. The one thing to keep in the back of your mind is that we would think that in a patient who's having a loop diuretic, you're going to have a significant degree of volume depletion followed by hypotension. That hypotension is the one thing that doesn't happen as often in these Barter syndrome patients. And it's the physiology behind it is a little bit interesting. If you think about how the kidney senses volume, a lot of it has to do with the macula densa. The macula densa, when it feels a ton of sodium and chloride being delivered to it, it thinks that there's tons of sodium around, hence there's tons of volume around. In a patient who takes a loop diuretic, or in this case, a patient with Barter syndrome, that sensing happens at the loop of Henle. So if you don't have enough sodium chloride hanging around, meaning your, your triporter is not working, your macula densa is sensing there's not enough sodium hanging around, there's not enough chloride hanging around, and it tries to ramp up its RAS system to try to increase its GFR. 
So these patients have volume depletion on one end from them being unable to reabsorb the sodium and chloride, but they also have upregulation of their RAS system because their macula densa thinks, oh, there's no sodium hanging around. I need to pump more GFR to get more sodium to this part of the kidney. So you have this sort of balancing act between RAS activation and volume depletion that kind of maintains these patients' blood pressures in a sort of soft, normalish range. But make no mistake, these patients are an incredibly, incredibly high risk of volume depletion. So a patient with Barter syndrome develops diarrhea or vomiting, these patients are in a very high risk for, for developing significant volume depletion. So one of the things to keep in mind for these patients, especially when you're trying to differentiate between Barter syndrome and Gittleman syndrome, is what happens to the other electrolytes. One of the important differentiating factors between these two is what happens to calcium. And so we're going to try to simplify this as much as possible. In that loop of Henle, the triporter, the one that gets disrupted in these barter patients, its job is to pick up sodium, potassium, chloride. Right next to it, you have another channel for potassium. It's called ROMK. Its job is some of that potassium that was reabsorbed, it dumps it back into the urine. And the reason it does that is to try to keep a positive charge in the lumen of the kidney. What that positive charge does is it repels other positive charges, for example, calcium. So that slight positive charge from that leaking back of the potassium actually drives the reabsorption of calcium in the ascending loop of Henle. So you can imagine that if you were to shut down that NKCC2, you're not reabsorbing potassium. If you're not reabsorbing potassium, you have no potassium to leak back. If you have no potassium to leak back, you have no positive charge in the lumen. You have no positive charge in the lumen, you have no driving force for calcium to be reabsorbed. So patients with Barter syndrome, just like patients who you give a loop diuretic to, will have increased calcium in their urine. And this is in differentiation from Gittleman syndrome, which we'll talk about in a minute. I actually have a quick question. If you have a patient with Barter syndrome... How well do they do long-term? And if you end up seeing them in the hospital, how do you resuscitate them? So great question. So the, again, these patients, they develop these symptoms very early on in life. And so the symptoms that you're going to see for these patients when they present are going to be almost always either electrolyte-related or volume depletion-related. So these patients are taught by their pediatric nephrologist that they have to stay incredibly hydrated. Usually these patients are going to be on some form of potassium supplementation, and sodium supplementation on a sort of chronic regulatory basis. Unfortunately, these patients are at high risk for volume depletion, and most of their AKI and such that happens in the long term is going to be related to volume depletion. And so the long-term prognosis, it really depends on the degree of the defect of the mutation and how well they can manage their volume symptoms. So as long as they can maintain hydration and volume uh, repletion, they should be okay they just have to be taught from a very young age that anytime they get sick, they're going to be losing a ton of volume, and hence they're going to be losing a ton of potassium along with it. Okay, so that's sort of it for Barter syndrome. Let's talk about Gittleman. Just how we sort of had a corollary in terms of Barter's being very similar to a loop diuretic, Gittleman syndrome is very similar to that of a thiazide diuretic. The distal convoluted tubule at normal physiology is really responsible for reabsorbing sodium and chloride via the NCC, the sodium and chloride co-transporter. So any defect to that NCC is going to lead to similar symptoms to anyone taking a medication that blocks the NCC2. So for example, a thiazide diuretic. These patients, because 
less volume is really being handled at this part of the kidney as compared to the, the loop of Henle. They present a little bit later in life. So you're thinking maybe childhood to early ad adolescence. So in their teens, maybe early 20s is when you're going to start to notice these patients. The symptoms are actually very similar to that of Barter's syndrome. These patients are going to be slightly volume depleted. They're going to be having some salt cravings because they're losing a ton of salt in their urine. They're, so they're going to be driving for potato chips and other salty foods. They're going to have the same hypokalemia. They're going to have the same sort of development of the metabolic alkalosis from the volume contraction. Where the differentiating fact here is, is calcium between the two of them. Aside from the age. So one is if your patient is diagnosed at the age of 22, 23, it's unlikely to be Barter's. They would have picked that up usually much sooner than that. But the other big aspect is calcium. So like we said, for barters, the problem is you can't reabsorb calcium. You can't reabsorb calcium because of all that potassium that's hanging around in the lumen. That is not an issue in Gittleman syndrome. In Gittleman, what happens is, if you think about the distal convoluted tubule, on the urinary side, you have this sodium chloride absorption via the co-transporter. If that doesn't work, the actual sodium concentration inside of the distal convoluted tubule cells drops. When the sodium inside the distal convoluted tubule drops, it has to find other ways to put sodium into that cell. One of the ways it does that on the basal side, meaning on the blood side, is you have a sodium calcium exchanger. So sodium comes in, what does that do to calcium? It pumps it in back into the blood. So you actually end up stimulating calcium reabsorption in this part of the kidney, in the distal convoluted tubule. So as you pump calcium into the blood on the basal side, the concentration of calcium inside the cell drops, and that creates a good electrogradient for calcium to be reabsorbed via the, the distal convoluted tubule. So these patients, unlike barters, will actually have very low calcium in their urine. So that's sort of the, one of the major ways of differentiating between these two is what you can do is you can check a calcium to creatinine ratio. Basically, how much calcium is going into the urine as compared to how much creatinine they're putting into the urine. If it's very low, typically you're talking under 50. You don't need to know the exact numbers, but just the concept. If it's very low, you're thinking Gittleman. If it's very high, typically above 200 to 300 milligrams in their urine, you're thinking Barter's because these patients can't reabsorb. So if there's ever a question between a patient who's got one of these two scenarios, maybe a, you know, a child where you're looking at the clinical scenario and it looks like he's got some type of tubulopathy, and they want you to make a diagnosis without doing genetic testing, this is sort of the one way that you would be able to point to one or the other. So there is, other than age of onset and calcium excretion, there is no other way to differentiate the two? The one way to make the diagnosis would be genetic testing. You can actually it. test for the actual mutation itself. There's other clues that can help you. For example, if you think of what the function of the loop of Henle normally does, the loop of Henle's job is to concentrate the urine. Mm -hmm. right? As you reabsorb stuff, you create a really strong interstitial gradient and that helps you concentrate your urine. In a patient with barters, they won't be able to do that. And so these patients, even when they're volume depleted, they will have fairly dilute urine, either the same osmolality as their blood or more dilute than that, as compared to someone with Gittleman syndrome where that loop of Henle still functions. So they are still able to make concentrated urine. Now, again, a lot of that has to do with whatever the volume status is at that time. So I wouldn't use it as a definitive diagnosis, but that kind of gives you an idea. So if a patient with one of these two scenarios and they give you a picture and their urine osmolality is like super, super high, 700, 800, that's unlikely to be barters because barters wouldn't be able to concentrate their urine that much. So in terms of barters and Gittleman, so just a quick recap, both of these are going to be 
earlier on in life, either childhood to early adolescence. Again, in the earlier, it's going to be barters. What can happen a little later is Gittleman. Both of these patients are going to be very susceptible to volume depletion. So they're typically not going to be hypertensive. They're going to be either normal tensive to slightly soft blood pressures. Both of these scenarios can lead to hypokalemia. Both of these scenarios can lead to a metabolic alkalosis. So the easiest way to differentiate between these two is looking at the urine calcium. A patient with the Gittleman will have very low urine calcium. A patient with Barters will have fairly high urine calcium. And then there's other clues like the osmolality that can point you one way or the other. But the only way to make a definitive diagnosis would be to get a genetic testing done to see what the actual mutation is for this patient. A third sort of channelopathy that fits into the same category of pathology but presents a lot differently is something like Little syndrome. As compared to Gittleman and Barters where you're talking about sort of salt wasting channelopathies, Little falls on the other side in that you're actually gaining salt, you're gaining sodium in these patients. Essentially what happens in Little syndrome is that ENAC channel, whose responsibility it was to pick up sodium, leave a charge, a negative charge behind that allows potassium to then be dumped into the urine, that ENAC channel is unable to be degraded. So you've lost the ability for it to be sensed by the ubiquination pathway to break it down. So you have a ton of ENAC hanging around, despite not having a stimulus for it. Your normal stimulus for this ENAC should be aldosterone. Aldosterone should stimulate that insertion of ENAC. So even without aldosterone around, you still have a ton of ENAC around in the distal part of the kidney. That's little syndrome. So in these patients, the clinical picture is very similar to that of someone with primary hyperaldo. So if you have a ton of aldosterone hanging around, you're going to have a ton of ENAC. You're going to have hypertensive patients with low potassium. That's identical to what you see in these patients. You see a ton of ENAC around. You have a hypertensive patient with the low potassium. Because as they're pick, every time they pick up one molecule of sodium via the ENAC, they're dumping another molecule of potassium. The only differentiating factor in these patients is if you were to check their serum aldo and renin levels, they'd all be low. So it'd be a renin and aldo independent hypertensive scenario. Because this is genetic mutation, again, the presentation for these patients is usually in their early childhood to maybe teens. So if you think, you know, if you see a patient who's 15 years old, hypertensive, low potassium, this is where you're going down the route of, is this hyperaldo from a tumor or aldosterone secreting tumor? Or is this a little syndrome type of a picture? And the treatment for this is pretty straightforward. So if you have a ton of ENAC around, and very low aldo, you just block the ENAC channels. You can put these patients on a milliride. You block the, the, the ENAC channel, you prevent sodium from coming in, hence you prevent potassium from going out. So you can sort of normalize both the blood pressure and the potassium by giving them an ENAC blockade with something like a milliride. Because this happens so early in terms of their hypertension though, most of these patients are going to develop hypertensive kidney disease earlier in life. The one sort of good aspect of that is when they do qualify for kidney transplant, the transplanted kidney won't have this mutated ENAX. And so the transplanted kidney won't have this problem. And so it's it's nice that it, once they do get the transplant, it's not a disease that reoccurs. So as their transplanted kidneys will have normally functioning ENAC channels um, and they should be under the normal control of aldosterone. Interesting. I don't know about you guys, but I think thanks to Deep, I'm finally able to take the nephrology part of my boards at least. So thank you so much, Deep, for going over this. And we have one more episode coming up for you guys, so stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye.